Okay, today's passage will start in the book of Acts, chapter 21, verse 27. We have a bit to get through. All right, this is God's word. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribu uh, tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. They inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. But the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and let the 4,000 men of the, of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And we had been giving him, uh, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear that the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Move on to verse 17 to 22. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and, saying, and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of Stephen was, wit your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed them. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to the word they listened to them, to him, then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever.
having some back issues. That's why I'm walking uh, cautiously here. Well, I need to um, introduce uh, two newcomers. Uh, let's welcome Victor and Daisy, uh, who are with us for the first time today. Victor, Daisy, sitting over there. Let's give a big, big hand. It's great to have you. Glad you can join us. Maybe seated. All right. Well, thank you for that uh, reading. I know it wasn't easy. Uh, I chose a really lengthy passage. And uh, thank you for the prayer as well. Well, uh, our passage is pretty long uh, because it includes a lengthy speech by Paul. Uh, and here we see him beginning his, <clears throat> his life as a prisoner. Uh, so this is actually a pretty important uh, moment in the book of Acts. Uh, this is where he, he does transition to, to live now a life as a prisoner. Okay, just make that mental note. Uh, but instead of confusing you <clears throat> with too many details of the story, I wanted to focus in on this one big question today, which is, why do people find the gospel so offensive? And you should really thank me for exercising some wise discernment today, because as of last night, my manuscript actually ballooned to 20-plus pages, which would have resulted in a 90-minute sermon. Uh, but I finally came to my senses and did some aggressive editing, so you're welcome. Happy uh, Labor Day weekend. <clears throat> um, before we get to our question, though, let me at least highlight two things from our story that ought to help us process the rest of the message. Okay, first is this Jewish hatred toward Paul was very real and intense, you know, during Paul's missionary journeys, uh, many Jews were indeed converted to the Christian faith, but there were many more Jews who considered Paul to be an enemy of God, and they believed that he needed to be put to death for the sin of corrupting God's law and his holy temple. And, and these Jews from Asia that we read about here in verse 27 fall into that category. You know, we're told that these Jews from Asia most likely... Uh, you know, where Ephesus is, people speculate. Uh, you can consider these guys as an angry Jewish mob. And they find Paul in the temple because, as you should remember, uh, Paul was partaking in, like, this Jewish ritual with four other guys, you know, doing the, the Nazarite vow thing, right, from, from last Sunday. Uh, so he was there, but these men come. They find him. They stir up the crowd by leveling false accusations against Paul, and they forcibly drag the Apostle Paul, this grown man, out of the temple. I mean, think about it. The Apostle Paul is roughly my age. Uh, for those of you who are new, I just turned 50, okay? I'm not young. I, I hide my age very well. I'm pretty old now, okay? The Apostle Paul is probably a little older than me when this angry mob assaulted him. I mean, think about it. I mean, how dehumanizing that would have been for him. Thankfully, the Roman officials intervene in a timely manner, and they bring some order to this cruel uh, act that's, that's going on, uh, which is, by the way, an example of God using a secular authority to fulfill his good purposes. And whenever we see God doing something like this, we should definitely thank him for doing it. In this case, if God did not appoint these Roman officials to intervene in a timely manner, Paul would have 
definitely been killed by this mob without any opportunity to further testify about Christ as we see him doing all throughout the rest of the book of Acts. It would have been a great tragedy. In fact, if Paul died here prematurely, we would not have any of the letters which are called the prison epistles. You know what those are? Bible trivia? <laughs> I'm sure Kim knows. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are what's called the prison epistles. Right? I mean, think about, we, we wouldn't have any of these letters if Paul died here in this story. Secondly, it's worth noting uh, the, part, the part of Paul's speech that actually triggers the crowd and, and turns them from just an angry mob to a raging mob. And the key words that Paul speaks that triggers the mob is in verse 21. This is part of his speech. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then it says, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Oh my, what is going on here? Right? It's like once Paul mentions that his mission is to reach the Gentiles with this gospel of grace, their anger turns into rage and they completely lose it. That's what we're seeing here. And so with those details as our backdrop, let's tackle our main question for today, which is, why is the gospel so offensive? I'll first make a general point that applies to everyone, and then I'll tie it into what we see happening with the Jews in our story today. One reason why people get so offended by the gospel is because the gospel tells us that salvation is a free gift. It is absolutely free. You may, you may think, why would that offend anyone? Well, let me put it this way. Let's imagine uh, you walk into a fancy store called Nordstrom, okay? Uh, by my standards, very fancy, okay? I'm not, I'm not sure about your standards, but by my standards, that's a pretty pricey store. I once walked in just trying to check things out. Man, the shoe prices were crazy high. I was like, forget it, all right? Let me go to JCPenney. <laughs> but uh, let's say you walk into Nordstrom to buy some new shoes and you see something you like. But the salesperson takes one good look at you, and he doesn't think that you can possibly afford to buy it, so he, you know, recommends some other cheaper options. And even if it may be true that you can't afford what you've been looking at, you would feel disrespected. You would feel embarrassed. You would feel belittled, insulted. You'd be basically offended. And that's also why most of us really don't like to receive any kind of help or charity from others. You know, our reaction typically is, well, you think I can't help myself, right? You can't think I can do it on my own? You know, because the gospel tells us that we are such moral failures that we have no option but to receive salvation as a free gift, right? This idea can easily offend people, right, who think that their decency gives them a chance to prove themselves before others, even before God. I'm not good enough. 
well, let me show you. Right? That's just human nature. They will not accept this free offer, and so they try to buy or earn their salvation, even though it leads to a dead end. Some of you may remember one of the final scenes from Saving Private Ryan, where Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, who, who leads the effort to save Private Ryan, right, played by Matt Damon. I thought it was a good movie, right? But, you know, uh, Matt, or Captain Miller is shot, and he's bleeding to death, but he manages to tell Private Ryan a few last words before he dies. But he struggles to muster up words, and so Matt Damon has to lean in. And as he leans in, Tom Hanks speaks into his ears. Earn this. Earn this. People, people like sacrifice their lives for, for Matt Damon. Tom Hanks himself is dying before him. He's like, earn this. <laughs> Imagine hearing those words, right? I mean, what kind of burden is that to bear all throughout your life? Earn this. We sacrificed our lives for you. You better earn it. I mean, that movie was directed and produced by Steven Spielberg, who was a Jew himself. And I, I, I think, and I've heard, I heard some people say this, that this could be an example of Spielberg's Jewish worldview bleeding into the story. Earn this. We have to earn our way to glory. Why did the Jews express so much hatred toward Paul and the gospel message? Well, ultimately, it was because they were a prideful people, like all of us, and they possessed a self-justifying spirit. That's one of the main reasons why the Jews had such a hard time viewing the Gentiles as co-equals before God, which is exactly what the gospel communicated to them. Right? It's like to think that God would open up his heavenly storehouse of blessings to the Gentiles without any kind of Jew and Gentile distinction whatsoever was almost impossible for the Jews to accept because they, in their minds, were clearly first class, and the Gentiles, those filthy, immoral people over there, they were second class. I mean, I was thinking of how difficult this must have been for the ancient Jew, or given how immoral and absolutely wicked some of these Gentile nations were, and, and they were, there's no denying that. I mean, think about how people in our day, right, now, they view one another, right? how difficult it is just even kind of like want to talk to people on the other side of the aisle on any given issue. Right? And we, we treat each other as absolutely wicked, right, oftentimes. But think about this situation, this scenario. It's a similar dynamic. I'm sure sometimes you think to yourself privately, you know, should I really share the gospel with that person? Right? No, I, I, I really I don't think it's worth my time. He's such a loser. I don't like him. I don't get along with him, or she's too lost and confused, right? Surely God doesn't think that she deserves to be, you know, sort of that mindset. And so I'm pretty sure that that is how most ancient Jews viewed these Gentile people. So I was thinking of how difficult this issue must have been for the ancient Jew, um, 
And one of Jesus' parables came to mind. The parable of the workers of the vineyard, recorded in Matthew 20. Uh, basically, there was an owner of a vineyard, and he invited workers. And uh, they were workers that came very early in the morning, and he promised to pay them a set amount. But then throughout the day, there were some workers that came at 12, some came at 3 p.m., some, claimed, some came just before closing time, right, so to speak. And so he, here's how the parable ends. Let me read a portion of it. Now, when those hired first came to receive payment, they thought that they would receive more than the others, but each of them also received a denarius, which was a promised amount. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, look, these last, they, they worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? And so the last will be first, and the first last. Now, every parable has a main point to it. Okay, don't don't take the main point to be like, oh, I guess we have to like, you know, uh, work our way to heaven. That's not the main point of the parable. Okay, the point of the parable was to describe one aspect of what the kingdom of God is to be like, what it's like. And this particular aspect was, was very difficult for the Jewish mind to accept because any Jew would have known that the worker who was invited first into this vineyard represented the Jewish people. That's what God is picturing here. He, he's drawing this picture. Right? The early, early workers are the Jewish people. And the later workers who came at three and at six, they are the Gentile nations. And the point is that God is equally generous to all his workers. It's like if you understand that whatever you receive from God is an undeserved free gift Regardless of when you were invited into his vineyard, like then what should your response to those who came later be? Like if you thought that the blessing you received was based on something about you, something you can boast in, something above your achievement, then yeah, you would cry out, this is unfair, this is unjust, how could you, God? You'd be angry. But if you knew that the blessing you received was based on grace, something undeserved, then you would rejoice in the fact that God is willing to extend the same grace to others who don't deserve to receive it just like you. Another reason people get offended by the gospel is because the gospel says that only those who are in Christ can be saved. Think about that. Only those who are in Christ. This is very offensive. You know, one of the main reasons why the Jews rejected Christ was because they could not accept the fact that their Messiah would ever teach the things that Jesus taught and then go on to defile himself by dying a criminal's 
death. I mean, how could our Messiah identify as someone who is cursed? We can't accept him as our Lord and Savior. That was sort of their reasoning. They rejected Christ. But the reason most people today reject Christ is somewhat different, isn't it? So we live in a postmodern world where people think that they can be the God of their own lives and create their own stories and realities. It's like when, I, when you think about it, at least, at least the Jews believed, and, they, and most of them still do, right? At least the Jews believed that there was only one true God, and at least they believed that there was one truth for everyone, and that we couldn't create this unlimited number of competing contradictory truths for everyone to claim. That's a total mess of a worldview. That's not a Jewish worldview, but at least Paul had that in common with these people he was addressing. But the postmodern mind is different. The postmodern mind wants to reject any exclusive and absolute truth claim, even though that's really not possible. They try to do it, and this is why the postmodern world we live in is so incoherent and messy. And I believe for that reason, we are living in a time where it's become much more difficult to evangelize and share the gospel to others. I'm sure most of you would agree. You know, even 20 years ago, when I was in seminary, there was some talk about the need for what they called pre-evangelism. What is that? Well, that's, that means the need to, even before you present the gospel, the need to discuss even more basic questions like what is truth? How, how, how do we arrive at truth? Is there an absolute truth? Because if you don't deal with those questions, I mean, it's like how can you really make sense of the gospel? Like, like what is sin, Right? if we can't even agree on the basic idea of the existence of absolute truth. It's like, how can you call someone to repent if, if they believe that the goalposts, or, uh, the, the goalposts of morality are, are, are allowed to shift every minute of the day? It's like, why, why would I need to be saved if I'm content in living out my story? And so pre-evangelism, even 20 years ago, was considered necessary. If that was the case back then, how much more now is my point? It's not easy. Have you ever uh, got around to watch the documentary, What is a Woman? Okay. How many? Hands? Thank you, thank you. Thank you for receiving my recommendation. Okay. I know it's hard to get access to, uh, but it is possible. And, you know, those are the kinds of movies... Uh, that are really worth watching. It, it'll wake you up in a sense. Right? It'll serve as an eye-opener as to what's actually going on and why the cultural battle right now is so intense. I highly recommend it, especially if you have teenagers in the home, uh, even grade schoolers. Watch it with them, discuss with them. Right? We need to educate our younger generation much better than we're doing now. So the world's a mess. What are you gonna do? Right? How, should we, how should we respond? So let me, let me share some points of application uh, in response to what's been shared up to this point. You know, if, you, um, 
If you consider how morally confused our culture, culture is right now, it, it may discourage you and even make you angry. But let me remind you that God promises, or he is the one, with his unshakable word, right? he promises to take care of the most impossible parts of the work that we're called to do. Right? He promises to do the work of actually changing the hearts and minds of the people whom we're called to serve. Right? That's the impossible task that God promises to take care of. <clears throat> he's responsible for that. Let's not forget that. Okay? In contrast, he's given us the rather simple task of humbly testifying of the gospel wherever he places us, right? according to our ability. Right? We all have different, different abilities. So you don't have to like compare yourselves to others. You just have to faithfully serve in your own capacity. In other words, brothers and sisters, we are to trust God with the end results of what people eventually decide to do with their lives. We can't control that. Right? You, can't, you can't lose so much sleep over the fact that people have not responded to your effort to, you know, to, to share the gospel with them. Our job is simply to testify of his truth and to share the message of reconciliation with others to the best of our ability. The rest we leave up to the Lord. I mean, think about the example of Paul here in this story. He was such a gifted man with an impressive resume. It says that he was educated. I mean, he puts this in his speech. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the most revered Jewish scholars of his time. You can think of it as like an Ivy League, ancient Ivy League education that Paul received. So that's why he was so good in relating to different cultures. He made really the ideal missionary. He was culturally savvy, very high cultural IQ. If you had his giftings and educational background along with his cultural IQ, <clears throat> see, you would have been able to break into the elite class of society rather easily and live a very comfortable life. But look what he chose to do instead. He chose to use his impressive resume and giftings to humbly testify of the grace of God, even though he knew that he was going to be imprisoned and likely die, even though he knew that his public defense before this Jewish mob was only going to probably anger the mob even more, even though he knew all of that, he chose to faithfully testify the grace of God because he understood that he was called to serve as a humble instrument in God's hands. Brothers and sisters, it's easy to get the impression that Paul was never afraid. Right? We often, and I, I make the mistake too, of, of thinking that he's some stoic figure. He just kind of just took everything without much thought. You know, just was like Iron Man or something. You know, I'll, I'll, he wasn't like that. Right? He was afraid and fearful, just like any of us would have been fearful if there were so many threats made against us. And we know that Paul was afraid because in the next chapter it says that the Lord stood next to Paul and spoke these words to him. Paul, 
katharse, one of my most favorite Greek words, katharse. In, in, in seminary, I, uh, I made a tharse club with a few others, okay? It was actually a group of three at the time. And there was our tharse club. And every time we would feel discouraged after a, a long day of ministry or study, um, we would say, hey, let's, let's do some tharse tonight. That, that, that usually meant uh, making a Chinatown run and getting some good food, okay, and having some good conversation, right, and maybe even praying together at times. That was our tharse, and we always make sure as we departed, say, tharse, right, see you tomorrow, tharse. It means take heart, take courage, Paul, for as you have testified, it says, the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome, when you first read this, you're thinking, how, is, <laughs> how does this give me reason to tharse? Right? Because notice, the Lord does not say, Paul, take courage. If you faithfully testify about me in Jerusalem, and then you faithfully testify about me in Rome, then I will guarantee your release, and your life will be spared. Paul, tharse. That's not what God says. That's not what the expectation was. Different perspective here. The Bible always gives us a, a different perspective, more heavenly perspective, right? It's like, Paul, this is what hap really happening here. Paul, Tharse, you have done what you have been called to do in Jerusalem. I will get you to Rome safely so that you can do the same there. In other words, continue to be my faithful servant who testifies about me, regardless of the outcome. Paul knew that he was going to suffer and likely die. God is saying, yes, you will suffer and die. But your life is ultimately in my hands. Tharse, take heart, take courage. Continue to serve me. Brothers, sisters, like the Apostle Paul, we, we need to be clear about what our lives are meant for and to whom we belong. This world has a way of swaying us to the left and to the right. Sometimes we lose our bearing and we even forget who we are and whom we're called to serve. And that is why it's important for us to remind ourselves of what is truly good and what is right what is truth every time we gather? Let's not make the mistake many of our immigrant parents have made in raising us, right? Um, my parents weren't, weren't exactly like this, but I hear this all the time. The parents, you know, they, they, they taught us to work hard to get into the best schools, that's sort of a common, common thing in the immigrant household. And uh, it, it can't just be any school. Okay? Preferably, it's got to be an Ivy League school, right? And you got to do that so that you can get a really good job, you know, preferably something in medicine or law, we're told. Some parents say, you know, any kind of government job is okay, too, because you at least get good, you know, retirement benefits, 
you can still be lazy and, you know, work. I'm just kidding. I, I shouldn't have said that. I know, I know uh, not all of you are lazy government workers, but I, I meet them all the time. And then they tack at the very end, attack on the idea, look, if you succeed in life, guess what? You will be a better witness for the Lord. That was sort of a common refrain. Right? Be successful. <laughs> Reach the pinnacle of society. And you know what? Imagine, you, imagine all the things you can do for the Lord. See, but what's reality? We know what reality is, right? Reality is that more often than not, while we do end up achieving academic excellence and becoming successful in our work, instead of being a faithful witness for the Lord, what often happens? We simply become more like the world around us, and we lose our distinct flavor as Christians. Isn't that a daily temptation? Isn't that what we've been struggling with the past few years? You know, these are dangerous times for me as well. Yes, in some sense, it is easier for pastors to testify of God's truth since that's what's expected of us. But as you know, church leaders are prone to wander as well. I'm not sure if you know this, but many pastors actually enter into the ministry, not so much because they love God and love to honor God's word, but because they love to influence people and they love to make a difference in people's lives in some way. Pastor David, after the 9 o'clock service, shared his theory. He's like, I think a lot of pastors become pastors because they have daddy issues, right? And they just want to be accepted by some, you know, a community or whatever. But because... Of these reasons that many pastors do have, when the social pressures mount, instead of choosing to be faithful toward God, right, they choose to appease the people around them. Because at some point, people have taken priority in their lives, even before God. It's supposed to be always God and then people, but it gets flipped at some point. And the, the pressures of life expose what their idols truly are. It's the same thing with pastors too, brothers and sisters. I mean, that's how you get PhD candidates asking me not to post their retreat messages online. This happened many, many years ago where I was a youth retreat. It's a, a brilliant speaker. I invited him because he was a, he had, he, I mean, he was well educated in, the field of science, we're talking about creation, evolution issues. And after the retreat, he's like, can you not post any messages online because I'm trying to get a job at a prominent university soon. That was a bit of a turnoff, to be honest. It's also why you get army chaplains who are unable to clearly articulate the gospel during a presbytery exam because these were his words. We're trained not to use such exclusive language in the army. But this was a presbytery exam. 
right? We, we, we assured him, look, even after we told him, you're with fellow brothers in Christ, you're allowed to speak freely here, there was this built-in fear that we could all sense. And I was deeply troubled by what I was witnessing because I knew this brother. He was older than me. We attended the same seminary, one of the most conservative seminaries in all the world. And I knew he studied the gospel thoroughly. But I was deeply troubled by what I was witnessing because, like, in my mind, if, if he was like that after a year or two of serving as an army chaplain, that means anyone could be swayed to compromise their faith with some social pressure, cultural pressure placed on them. If he was shaken, anybody could be shaken. Let me also say, brothers, sisters, as I slowly wrap up this message, because this happens a lot too, I'm noticing, and it's bothering, it's, it's really uh, bothersome. I see it all the time. Please, as Cornerstone members, do not be deceived by those who love to emote while making irrational and incoherent arguments. Like in today's world, there seems to be this unspoken rule that basically says the one who emotes the most wins over people's hearts and eventually wins the argument. It's a sad reality. And it's only possible in a world where truth is no longer honored as truth. Feelings trump truth any time in our day. Like as long as you're super passionate about something and you're able to shed some tears over it, that validates your version of truth no matter how nonsensical your truth claims may be. Contrast that with what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 2. He writes, they have a passion for God, but not according to knowledge. That, that's the same thing. They have a lot of hyped-up emotion. Right? They emote a lot, but it's not based on any kind of knowledge or truth. That's what Paul's saying. And the Apostle Paul describes the Jews of his day in this way. He's, he's talking about his Jewish brethren. But this is also how he describes himself before he met Christ on the Damascus Road. Again, part of his speech, he writes, or he, he declares, being Zealous for God, being passionate for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted the Christian church to the death. That's how he describes himself. I was passionate, but very wrong. My passion was not in according to knowledge. Let's be clear this morning. Passion without true knowledge means absolutely nothing. No one, can, no one can emote their way to heaven. Everyone needs to at some point acknowledge that what God says in his word is undeniably true for all people, everywhere, at all times, no matter how they may feel about it.
People in our day possess a lot of passion, but so often their passion is not grounded in any actual truth, and it's bothersome. I guess that much is predictable, but it's bothersome when I see Christians kind of like finding that appealing and going over, being duped, being deceived, and employing the same tactics as the world. Please do not be deceived by those who love to emote while making irrational, incoherent arguments. Lastly, Given how our lives are right now and our culture is, let me encourage you strongly to join one of our small groups or our CGs. You know, I hope that all of you will make an effort to be part of one because not only do we need the time and space to fellowship with other believers, but see, after spending time at work where our thoughts, where our words are constantly being regulated, by arbitrary rules. We as believers need the time and space to simply speak words to one another that are true, that are God-honoring, that are life-giving, but that are true. We need to be regular truth-sayers something I'm sure you struggle with doing at work. Many of you don't feel free. And I tell you, if you end up losing that habit of regular truth-telling, truth-speaking, then you cannot cultivate a vibrant faith. Right? Your, your faith will shrivel up and you will die. Our soul needs to declare the truth of God for our own sake and for the sake of others. That's what we're made to do. And so as the times we're living in become stranger, we will need each other even more. Okay? Our fellowship needs to grow thicker, not thinner. Don't isolate yourselves just because there's another, you know, another virus, another Omicron variant or whatever. Right? Don't isolate yourselves anymore. Let's grow thicker in our fellowship with one another. You know, many people today actually confess that they desperately need a church that plainly speaks the truth just so that they could be reminded that they're not the ones going crazy in this world. So may, may this community we have here. May, may our church serve as a refuge for people of all stripes. A church that declares boldly and humbly the truth of God's word, no matter what pressures we may face. This is the sad reality we live in, but may that thought also serve as an important reminder of the kind of church we should aspire to be. Amen? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Dear Father, Though life is not always easy and sometimes overwhelming, though it has become increasingly difficult to be outspoken of what we believe and the places we live, work, and play, you remind us today that we have been given the gospel of grace in order that we would become faithful messengers of that very gospel. Where we lack conviction, I pray that your spirit would bring clarity to our minds regarding your truth. 
so that we'd be able to boldly live out our convictions in the face of the growing opposition we face each week. Help us to remember that we are called to live as pilgrims and sojourners in this fallen world with our hope in a better country to which we ultimately belong. We confess with much hope that it is your grace that brought us safe thus far and that your grace will lead us home. We praise you and thank you for such a grace that preserves us from beginning to end. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll stand together and give praise to God.